Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be start in chapter 20 today, Deuteronomy 20. We're going to end in chapter 21. So we're going to do like a chapter and a half, which is a daunting task. But I want to share a couple things as you try to find that, Deuteronomy 20. Uh, one is just want to remind you each week, uh, or first, thank you for your generosity as a church family, the gifts that you've uh, given recently, even to our general fund of our church. Uh, thank you. I was just thinking as we were singing Christ Our Treasure, uh, if we really believe that, how that should give us an open-handedness with the, the resources that God gives us in life, that we, that we use them as stewards. And I'm grateful to God for how, you all, uh, how we all do that together as a church family. And if you'd like to make contributions, there's ways you can do it online, digitally, through our website or text, uh, text giving even, you can go to that website, or you could uh, drop um, monetary gifts in the offering boxes at the back of the auditorium here on Sundays, or you can mail them into the church office, uh, whatever is easiest and best for you, but would encourage you to try to make it an act of worship, not just a passive thing that you do, but be conscious of how you're using the resources that God has given you, and see your giving to the, the missional causes of our church as an act of worship to him. The other thing I wanted to, to share briefly is an opportunity to be generous that's more specific and narrow. Next month, April the 23rd, Saturday night, we're going to have our art gala. We haven't done this in a few years. Uh, we're going to be seeking to raise funds that night uh, to help Adam and Claire Pennard be able to go to a school next year down in Louisville, Kentucky for one year. That's through our denomination. They call it the Pastors College. Uh, we'd love for them to be able to do that and not have to worry about finance at all. And so uh, we're trying to, to gather uh, various pieces of art, types of art. Uh, we need volunteers to help with a kids art section or with uh, providing of food set up, tear down, things like that. If you'd like to volunteer, there's sign-ups out at the, the counter out in the lobby uh, where you could sign up for that or you could go to this website uh, that's listed at the bottom there if you'd like to help with food donations. There's some specific things on that site that you can uh, sign up to help with as well. So if you are an artist or you know artists, would encourage you to take the next month and try to either pull out something that you've made before or think what you may be able to produce to bring uh, that week and, and be able to put it up for auction uh, to raise funds for a good cause that will go ultimately to a church plant work in North Manchester. So thanks in advance for that. All right, we are going to be in Deuteronomy 20 and get up through Deuteronomy 21, verse 14 today. So this is a large text. But uh, and coming up to this text, I, I found that it's very fitting as far as the timing goes because this text is going to talk about warfare, uh, how uh, the, the citizens of Israel, the nation of Israel, how the soldiers of Israel were to fight and not fight. And in our world right now, uh, for the first time in a long time, there's a, a a uh, combat, a war that's taking place that has gained the world's attention that I, th I feel like most people in the world are probably cognizant of to some degree. And a phrase that came to mind uh, as I was reading this text and I wanted you to be aware of because I'm going to kind of use it as a, a metaphor to govern how we read this text is this phrase called rules of engagement. Uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with that term. If you don't know what that means, uh, rules of engagement are something that military forces use as they're about to enter into combat. Uh, I guarantee right now on both sides of the combat that's happening in Ukraine, there's rules of engagement that soldiers are aware of. What those rules of engagement are uh, is this. They, they, soldiers, it's, it's impossible for soldiers to know in advance every 
specific situation that's going to arise, right? They can kind of anticipate what things are going to be like, what types of things may happen, but it's impossible to anticipate with precision exactly what's going to take place. And so what happens is, is commanders give these rules in advance, these rules of engagement to soldiers, where they give them directives in advance so they can know, as they enter into situations, they can know what is allowed and what's not allowed. So they can know in this type of situation, this type of action is permissible, but do not do this, no matter what. Like they, they, they try to anticipate types of scenarios that will unfold and then give directives in advance about what is acceptable, what's not, uh, even what extent of a response is appropriate and what's not, how, how much latitude, how much freedom soldiers have. And those rules of engagement, as awful as they may be to think about, they're, they're given for a reason because they give soldiers as they enter into combat, they give them, in some ways, they give them confidence that this is what I'm considering doing is okay or is encouraged even by my commanders for various reasons. Or those rules can also serve a function of restraining a soldier, like who may in an instant feel an impulse to react in a certain way, but they've been told in advance, do not go there, do not do that. There's a line that you do not cross no matter what, and it can keep soldiers from doing rash things that would just escalate situations. And so these rules of engagement are used, they've been used since ancient times, they're used in modern times. And as we come to Deuteronomy 20 and get into chapter 21 this morning, we're going to see Moses give, in a sense, a, a parallel, rules of engagement to the nation of Israel. As they're about to go into the promised land, as they're about to enter into combat in the near future, and then far out even in the future as well, uh, Moses, on behalf of God, is going to give them at least some broad strokes of rules of engagement. These are, are ways you should approach this combat or not. These are, are ways you should have restraint and uh, it may be hard for us to see some relevance of a text like this for us today because as believers today, as the people of God today, we're not a nation state, right? We don't have a military or a militia or anything like that. Uh, so these commands could feel strange for us to try to appropriate for ourselves. But I would just encourage us as we get ready to read this text to remember that even as God's people in today's world, in the church era, uh, even as Christians, we do still have enemies, right? We, we are, whether we realize it or not, we are part of a cosmic battle. We are part of a, a cosmic war that God does give us directives about how to engage in, how to, uh, how to fight in, so to speak, in appropriate ways. And as we enter into our battles, uh, our spiritual battles even, uh, we are not to enter into them just however we see fit just operating however we want, God gives us rules of engagement uh, of what is appropriate, what is fitting for his people. And so we enter into our spiritual combat under the guidance of our great king and our great commander, Jesus. And so I want to read this text for you. It is a long text. I'm going to start at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way through chapter 21, verse 14. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot. Uh, so there may, the, especially the middle part uh, where you'll see things about a cow being killed. And it, that part I will talk about, but it won't be as robust as the parts that are at the beginning and at the end that are about warfare. Uh, those are going to be what I'm going to spend the most time in. But what we're going to read is the words of Moses that were spoken to the nation of Israel. He was about to pass away. They're about to pass 
pass into the promised land at long last. And it's, these are part of the instructions he's giving them to help them get ready for life in the land, uh, even for generations to come. And so there's going to be a, a short section in the middle about how to handle an unsolved murder. Uh, but the, the two parts at the beginning and end are going to be about how to handle combat. And so I want you to follow along as best as you can. And then after I read this, we'll walk back through and see what the Lord may teach us through this text today. So trust that you've found this by now. Deuteronomy chapter 20, start at verse 1. Moses continues his address to his fellow Israelites by saying this. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. And the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then the commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it's not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out. 
and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that's nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priest, the son of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the, bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And when you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, you shall bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. This is the word of the Lord. Much in here. Uh, I want to, to summarize uh, the message, I believe, of, of this text, and that I would want to convey to you today this way, is that as the people of God, we must engage our enemies with faith, restraint, and compassion. That's how I would summarize the main point of this text, is that as the people of God, we must engage our enemies with faith, restraint, and compassion. Uh, I want to make sure we understand the setting of these, these sections that are talking about warfare and what Moses is anticipating and imagining that he's giving rules of engagement about. Because you may have picked up on this back in chapter 20, uh, that section, that first section about warfare, there's two types of rules of engagement that Moses gives. There's two types of battle that they're about to enter into. Uh, one is sooner, the other is later. But the, the one type of warfare that Moses is anticipating is what they're about to face in the immediate future. They're going into the land of Canaan. Uh, and what he talks about those in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 20. Uh, and there, as he's talking about those cities and those peoples and how to approach them, we've talked about this before in Deuteronomy, so I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point now, but he gives them very clear directions that are very hard where he says to, to devote them to complete destruction. That's verse 17. Devote them to complete destruction. And that, as brutal as that may seem to us, there, were, there was reasons that God gave. We've talked about them before. But even in Deuteronomy 20, you see that that wasn't the only approach to warfare that they were to have. That was purely for the Canaanite people. There was a uniqueness of evil even amongst those people that the Lord was seeking to address. But that was not the, the utter destruction of every living, breathing thing in those cities wasn't a pattern to follow 
always for the nation of Israel. There, there was a different era that they would enter into after that initial land had been conquered. And that's what Moses spends the rest of chapter 20 talking about, is this other type of combat against these cities. If you saw in verse 15, he talks about these cities that are, quote, very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. Uh, so what he's imagining, this other type of combat, is not the land of Canaan, not the promised land, but combat that would be against cities and peoples beyond that, beyond the land of Canaan, out elsewhere. And he, that's what he spends the majority of chapter 20 giving directions about. And we're not told exactly what would prompt this war. We're not told the scenarios that would prompt fighting against these cities that are outside the land of Canaan. Uh, the chapter just starts, when you go out to war against your enemies. We're, we're not told all what would justify these wars, whether they're offensive wars, or I would seem to believe, based on some things in this text, they're more defensive wars, where they've been provoked to certain things. Um, but uh, the, the text starts, when you go out to war. And, but what we see in Deuteronomy 20 and even into chapter 21, is in these rules of engagement about how to combat these peoples and these cities outside of the promised land, that the Israelites were not supposed to be these bloodthirsty, like imperialistic, like we're going to expand the brand of Israel, and we're going to conquer land, we're going to take over the world bit by bit, and we're just going to run roughshod over people. That is, that is not the 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 image that you get based on these rules of engagement. These battles were to be entered into. This combat was to be entered into by the Israelites, I would say with measuredness, with sobriety, and especially with obedience toward God. That they were not just supposed to go about them however they saw fit, just what will ever further the nation of Israel, what will ever get us further out into the world. They were to engage in these battles how God said to. God gave them rules of engagement. So I want to walk back through this text and show some things uh, of what these rules of engagement were, these guidelines that God is giving his people about how to actually fight in these battles. And even, I think, at the beginning of this text, the first paragraph, you see even in the forming of the army, even in the recruiting, even in the enlistment of men to fight in these battles, there's a unique approach that the Israelites are supposed to take that would not have been one that was a blueprint that other nations had. They, they were forming this army in a very unique way. And I, I think the first thing that we see, and I'll just use this heading for verses 1 through 9, is that in enlistment, they were supposed to have faith. In enlistment, Faith. That was to be something that was unique about how God's people even chose their army. And so the first paragraph, verses 1 through 9, Moses is telling them how to assemble an army, what sort of traits to look for, what process to go through to, to form an actual force to go out against these other cities. And the overarching aim in that paragraph is that Moses wants to them to assemble an army that is strong in faith. That is not how armies are typically formed, right? But, but Moses' aim is that he wants to assemble an army that is strong in faith in the Lord because he knows, he says it right in verse 1, he knows that they're going to come up against forces that are stronger than them, that are much more long established in the land than them, that are, that are fortified, that, that have been in these places a long time, that perhaps have uh, greater numbers, greater skills, greater weapons, who knows. But he says in verse 1 uh, that, they are to, that they shall not be afraid of them. 
They shall not be afraid of these cities. And the reason that he says it is because the Lord your God is with you. The God who brought you out of Egypt. And they, what Moses wants them to remember as they come up to battle is not the size and the strength of the enemy that is before them, but the history and the strength of God who is with them. Uh, the, the God who is compelling them and with them as they go into battle. And so he says in verses 3 to 4, the priests should come out first. In our army, I don't know that we have chaplains or something like that come out first in recruitment. They're not usually part of the, the recruitment office. Uh, but the priests are to go, and they're to, verses 3 and 4, speak those very things to these, these men who may fight for the nation of Israel, to remind them what God has done for them in the past and to not be afraid because God is with us that's what the priests are to say to the people but then after the priests speak and remind them of those things this fascinating thing happens in verses five through eight if you and you may have picked up on it is they actually start paring the army down did you catch that like they're not just trying to get any warm body any strong person to be there they actually start giving outs giving reasons that people could go back to their family, could go back to their home. Uh, and they do it through verses 5 through 8. They give these examples saying, like, if you have a new house and you haven't gotten to live in it yet, go back and live in it. If you have a new vineyard that you've planted but you haven't really gotten to see the fruit of it or enjoy that yet, go back to that. If you have a fiancé who you haven't gotten to marry yet or seek to start a family with yet, go back to her, marry her, be there with her. He even, in verse, the later verses of that, chap, or that paragraph, even says, if there's men who are fearful or faint-hearted, he says, go back. Like, if you stay, your, your fear is going to spread like an infection in the army. And just think, if you follow the news at all, I know, like in Ukraine right now, they, they, try, they prevented men from leaving the country to keep as big of a force as they could numerically, right? That, that's how the world thinks, is we need more people. And this, think of the people that would be leaving here. The people, who, it's seemingly probably young men right? Like who would have been some of the stronger people and they're saying, yeah, like we're, out, we're good if you all go home, like because we have God still. Like you're dispensable. You can go back home, enjoy life in the land, enjoy the things that the Lord is about to give to you. And, and Moses is wanting the, the Israelite army to be marked not by, he wants their confidence, I'd say, to not come from their size or from their skill but from their faith and from their God that they place their faith in. That's what Moses wants the Israelite armies to always be marked by. And so in enlistment, there is supposed to be this faith in the army of the people of God. I want to pause and just give brief words of application as we walk through this. We have a spiritual enemy, right? We have a spiritual enemy who is stronger than us, left to ourselves, who is much more long established than us, right? Satan has been around longer than any of us by far. Uh, he, he has lived through some things. He has learned things. He is crafty. He is strong. We have a spiritual enemy. But I think from a text like this, we can learn vicariously through the Israelites that we do not need to fear him. That though he is stronger than us, though he is menacing, though he is accusing, though he threatens us, we need not fear him. 
And it's not because we are strong. It's not because we left ourselves, can overcome him, we can overthrow him, we cannot. But the reason we don't fear him is because God is with us. God, his creator, God who exposed his weakness at the cross and at the empty tomb, that God is with us and for us. And when we come against the forces of evil, when we combat the evil one, when he seeks to come against us, we have the Lord God with us. And Moses wanted these priests to point these soldiers back to the exodus, right? He says, the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember what he did? Like how he brought the plagues and how he parted the Red Sea and how he destroyed our enemies back there at the Red Sea. Remember that, Israel? And he's wanting that to compel faith and courage to fight against forces of evil that come against them. We have something, I'll say this many times from this pulpit, I've said it before, we'll say it again, we have something better than the Exodus to look back to. Like we have some, that was amazing, the parting of the sea, the destroying of those chariots. We have the cross of Jesus to look back to, where Satan himself was exposed as weak, where death itself was exposed as weak because the Son of God was crucified for us. He took on Satan toe-to-toe and defeated him. He took everything that he could bring and on top of that he suffered the very wrath of God in our place and he was laid in a tomb and then he conquered our greatest enemy of death. Uh, An enemy stronger than the, the Egyptians, stronger than the Canaanites, stronger than Satan himself. Death itself Jesus has conquered. And so as we come against forces of evil, as they accuse us, as they assault us, as they attack us, we have something and someone to look to to give us courage, to give us faith. And that's the person of Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. And so we need not fear. We can have faith that's even stronger than what these soldiers would have. So these officers, then verse 9, uh, we'll turn a corner here to go to verses 10 through 20. And verse 9, there's this pivot point because the officers finish speaking to the people, kind of giving them this out, these reasons they can return home. And then the commanders are appointed at the head of the people. And then instructions are now going to be given now that the army's been pared down, now that it's to these faithful uh, people, these men full of faith in God. Now actual more specific rules of engagement are given and I think verses 10 through 20 we see that in combat as they enter into actual combat restraint is commanded and this would have been a very unique thing in the ancient world it's a unique thing even in today's world that as this nation is entering into combat there is restraint that's commanded of them that they're not just allowed to do what they want to enter into warfare however they want there are these very specific rules of engagement that Moses gives to them and I think the word restraint is a fair way to summarize what uh, Moses tells them must be true of their forces as they go into combat because they're not supposed to just be ruthlessly expanding their territory like I said there's to be restraint and measuredness right especially as they fight these cities that are outside the land of Canaan I want to show you a couple places where I and why I think the Lord was commanding restraint as they came up against these enemies the first one if you look at verses 10 and 11 uh, in those verses you see that Moses is telling them their first instinct, their first action as they come up to the city to potentially fight against it. And again, we don't know all the background of why they're coming against the city or was it provoked or what, what brought them to the precipice of combat. But you see in verses 10 and 11 that the Israelites are supposed to come first offering peace. 
right? They don't come guns blazing or whatever the ancient equivalent of that would have been. They, they come first offering terms of peace. Saying, we do not want to fight. Like, we do not want to destroy you. We, we don't delight in this. We don't want it to happen. And, and Moses says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And so God's people's first instinct was supposed to be, and I would say today still should be, to live peaceably with people. To not be just hankering for fights all the time and just trying to, to come to a fight with every possible person. They're to, to, to lead with peace and to see combat as a last resort, not as a first measure, right? And so there's this restraint that they're supposed to have even in coming and offering terms of peace, possibly to people who've provoked them. Right? Possibly to people who have threatened Israel itself. We don't know, but that could have been a situation where they've brought threats against the nation of Israel and their first instinct is to go to them and say, we will live at peace with you. Like, we don't want to fight. We are willing to live at peace with you. That's a, a matter of great restraint for an army. And in verses 12 through 14, you see more restraint uh, as, as Moses imagines a city not responding to that offer of peace and refusing it and then on top of that making war against Israel verse 12 he says you shall besiege it but then in verses 13 and 14 he says that there should be restraint even in who they put to death like they're not just to enter in like they do in these Canaanite cities and destroy everything there is to be a measuredness about who they uh, fight against and who they put to death as awful as that is for us to think about and he, he says that women and children are to be spared they, they are to be allowed to live they are not to be uh, sought out they are not to be put to death only combatants are to be put to death and there will be more I'll, I'll return to this subject particularly about how the women of these cities were treated at the end of today's text but just note there's restraint and that they're not supposed to just destroy everything and take over everything there's restraint and that they're not to put to death the women or the children of these towns that would have been somewhat unusual in the ancient world at least the way that they did that the third thing is that they this is it seems so uh, verses 19 through 20 seem like something somebody would write in today's world, like an environmentalist or something. Like that, that where, uh, he, and that's not to disparage environmentalists. I did not mean it that way. But it does seem like a very modern type of statement, where in verses 19 through 20, you see they're even as they enter into warfare, as they enter into combat, they're even to respect the trees right like they're not to just go cut down trees and destroy all the trees of these surrounding cities uh, because there are sometimes a military combat and I'm not going to get into a lot of examples of this I don't want to I don't intend to be controversial but we're in warfare as part of destroying or taking on a town or a region there's times where uh, armies have destroyed the land around them as well like as a way to just decimate them or humiliate them or prevent them from being able to live in the future, anyone being able to live healthily in the future there. And God, through Moses, is telling them, when you besiege a city, don't just cut down trees. Like you can eat from the trees, uh, you, can, you can enjoy them, but, and if you need to cut down trees to build these siege works to maybe get up over the walls of these cities, only cut down what you need. 
Like even they're to show restraint even in how they treat the trees that are around these cities. They're to respect the environment. And that's a reminder to these soldiers that Moses knew would come behind him that they are creatures, not gods. Like they don't get to just do whatever they want and just conquer however they want. They are creatures who are following the commands of their God. Who do what he says and who don't do what he forbids. And God is drawing lines of how they are to engage in warfare. And he tells them they are to show restraint in all these different ways. And by way of application, we, we today, we do have human enemies, right? Like Jesus taught us about like to, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? We do have human opponents, so to speak, people who may mistreat us. We certainly have, although we don't have to think of them per se as enemies, but even as Christians, we are part of the people of God, and there are many in the world who are followers of Satan, who are outside of the family of God, who, though they may not oppose us, they are part of the enemy camp, right? Like our true fight is against Satan, their ruler, but there are enemies uh, in the opposing camp. And what I, by way of application, I would say as we engage whether with unbelievers that we're seeking to, to evangelize or as we engage with people who functionally have become our enemy, who mistreat us, our first instinct as the people of God following this pattern should be to live at peace with those people. Even people who strike us, even people who mistreat us, even people who harm us or seek to belittle us, our first instinct should not be to fight them but to offer to live at peace with them. Say, I, I do not want to retaliate. I, my first instinct is not to strike back at you. My first instinct, friend, if you're willing to receive that title, is to love you and to forgive you and to live at peace with you. That is the first instinct of the people of God is to offer peace, not war. To, to offer kindness to even our very enemies. And that is what Jesus taught us, right? I already referenced this, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to love your enemies. And to pray for those who persecute you. That's not just me giving you some feel-good, naive advice. That is Jesus himself commanding you to love your enemies. To pray for the people even who harm you. That is our, ought to be our instinct as the people of God. Because that is God's demeanor toward us. Right? Like we are enemies naturally of God. Like, we deserve for God to strike us. We deserve for God to bring first judgment upon us. But rather than that, God shows great restraint toward us. He loves enemies of him like me and like you. And his first instinct in sending Christ was to bring forgiveness, to establish peace with us. Someday Christ will return to bring judgment, but the first approach of Jesus was to bring peace and life right? That's John 3. He'll, 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 he came to bring life and forgiveness. Later he will come to bring judgment. God's first instinct to us is to show mercy and to live at peace with us established through Jesus. So as we engage with people who mistreat us, as we engage with people who are enemies of us positionally or who are part of the enemy camp of Satan and of the world, we must, I, I would maybe think of that latter domain. As we engage people who are unbelievers, 
As we seek to address them, we don't advance militarily, but we take the gospel to them and seek to bring them in to our camp, to seek to to bring them out of enemy territory. As we engage unbelievers, as we engage people who are enemies of God, we must not, as Christians, delight in trying to belittle them or humiliate them or embarrass them. I sadly see this happen a lot with Christians who, who we feel like, well, we're part of the people of God and we see these enemies of God out there. And rather than trying to win them to the Lord, we try to beat them in arguments. We try to embarrass them. We try to shame them. We try to make them see how vile they are and sinful they are. And rather than doing that to point them to Christ, we do it like we're scoring points with them. Like to try to win a debate, to win an argument with them. And we must be much better at winning souls than we are at winning arguments. Like that we actually have a heart to see them not just be brought low, but see them be brought to Jesus. To not just see them be defeated in an argument or see how wrong they are, but to be pressed into contrition, into brokenness. And even in how we combat them, even in how we bring truth to them and challenge them, we should be winsome in how we do it. Like, we're not just trying to tear them down. We are trying to win them to the Lord. And so we must not, as God's people, delight in mocking people or being sarcastic or ridiculing them. We, we must seek to win them to the Lord. And so there must be restraint in our heart, even as we engage unbelievers. I want to talk about this middle section, the part about the heifer, the breaking the neck. This seems so foreign to us, uh, this start of chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I'm not going to have time to get way down into the weeds of this, but I do want to say that at least a theme that, or a thread that connects this paragraph with the ones around it is the valuing of human life. Uh, that, that there's restraint commanded in chapter 20. There's restraint commanded in what's going to follow about how they engage with females uh, who were part of these cities. There's restraint in both of those things, but in both you see the value of human life, that, that God's people, even as they enter into combat, are to respect human life, the, the image bearers of God. And you see that here just in a different way at the start of chapter 21. I just want to explain briefly at least what Moses is describing here. Uh, Because in the midst of a discussion about warfare and where many lives may be lost, he's going to show that even when one is lost, that there is great measures that should be taken to address it. That that there is such value even in one human life that should be brought enormous attention. So what he's describing at the start of 21 is a a situation where uh, a life was taken of someone, where, where someone was killed, but where it's unknown who did it where it's unknown who took the life of that person. And he describes this, this ritual, the, the, this series of acts that they're supposed to enter into then when that takes place, when there's someone who is found who's been killed, but they don't know who did it. And the, the ritual, the, the, what they were called to do, involved this. And it, there's a lot of work involved. There's just for one person, they may not have even known. Well, there's a lot of work that's involved. The They're to bring the elders and judges, Moses says, uh, from, uh, are to come out and they're to measure. They didn't have like GPS and Google Maps and stuff to measure from this pen to that pen. They're to measure what's the closest town to where we found this person. That would take great effort to determine. Uh, Then they're to go to that city and have the elders of that city, whatever one is nearest by, the elders of that city come out 
with a heifer who has never worked, who's never pulled a yoke, that that would have taken time to find and to secure, they're to, to bring that out, and they're to take it to a particular type of place, not even necessarily where the person was found, but they're to take it to a place that Moses describes as being in a valley and having water that sounds like, it seems like a stream nearby, like moving water that's nearby. And what they're to do with that heifer in that place is they're to break its neck. Seemingly, I would say, to, it seems like that heifer is to symbolize what should have taken place for the murderer. Like that there's judgment that should come. This human life was valuable that this person took. And there's judgment that should come to the murderer. They don't know who he or she is though. But they're to break the neck of that heifer and then over it, they are to, to wash their hands over it, right? And then they are to pray these prayers of atonement language to pray for the Lord's grace to the surrounding towns and to the land and to, to cleanse the land of its guilt. Uh, we, we've seen in other texts before when there's murder that takes place, it's like the blood goes into the ground. There's this like guilt that needs to be purged from the land. And without knowing who actually committed it, they do their best in the absence of knowing that to show this life is still valuable. And even though we can't truly bring about justice like we desire to, we still want to show that this life ought not to have been taken. And God, we want you to cleanse us of this evil. We, want to, we don't want this to continue. We don't want this guilt to be on us. Like, please show us grace. Please show us mercy. And so there's this... this Seems like an unusual ritual injected in here, but it shows at least a common thread, the value of even a single human life that, that maybe could have just easily been uh, left there and not addressed. God's people are to never let any human life be looked over or to, to be forgotten or to be unaddressed, but every human being is valuable. And though that heifer could not substitute for a man, Right? They were still called to do something to try to bring about atonement. And I think even that is pointing ahead to the atonement of Jesus, that, that a heifer could not stand in for a person, right? Not just because they didn't know who it is, but because it's a cow. Like it, it can't fully be a, a substitute for that murder, but Jesus Christ could be a substitute for us as a fellow human, as a man, and that's what he became upon the cross. So Moses addresses that, then he returns to this subject of warfare, and this will be the last section for today, this subject of combat. And this last paragraph that I read, verses 10 through 14 of chapter 21, I would guess, as you heard me read it, if you were able to track along, is the part that bristled against you the most, if you're anything like me. That there's something about the phrases in there, the discussion in there, that to our, our modern ears sounds odd, it sounds very strange it maybe even sounds like it's mistreating of these ladies that, that there's this mistreatment of these ladies but Moses turns to this subject of how to care for how to handle I don't know what verb to use how to treat the women who were spared from these cities that they went into combat against and how I would frame this last section is this I would say that part of the the, the rules of engagement are that in victory they're supposed to show compassion. And you may have heard this paragraph and think, I don't see compassion in there. I don't see it. I want to show you why I think the Lord, through Moses, was commanding compassion even in their victory and how they treated these women. Imagine being in one of those cities. Imagine that the Israelites have come against them 
the, that city opposed the Israelites. They defied them. Who knows what the attitudes of the men, or, or excuse me, of the women and children were like, but the men at least defied Israel. They come out in war against them, and it's defeated. Its men are killed. Right? And the Lord in his mercy, the restraint that we commended in ver- in back in chapter 20, has allowed these women and children to continue living. What should take place then? Like, what should happen to them? Like, how, how should they be treated? How should they be taken care of? Because they are in an unspeakably vulnerable position at that point, right? These women, I cannot even imagine being in their situation, their predicament, that they, their city has just been defeated by these people they had opposed. But they've been allowed to live. I, I'm not going to get into details about this because I know there are children in the room and I want to be mindful. But I want you to think about how typically an army of men would act if they defeat a city in the ancient world and if they were these bloodthirsty men who had no morals. Think about how they would have treated these women. Think about the atrocities and the evils that would have unfolded. The the ways, even in today's world, that armies and militias and things like that treat women who are captives of the, the places that they take over. It is horrific and awful to think about. And God, I think through Moses saying, there will be none of that. Like you men will not treat these women that way. That you will not take advantage of them. You will not harm them. You will respect them. You will take care of them. You will treat them uh, with respect and dignity. The Lord does not want his people to just act in, in fleshly impulses and discard and mistreat people as if they're just objects. As if they are just things instead of people. And so how are those women to be treated? Like how are they to be taken care of? That you can maybe imagine other scenarios, but what, what God describes here is that they are to be brought into the life of Israel. They're not just to be left to fend for themselves. They're not just to be left uh, to, to do and try to live and survive on their own. They are to, he describes it as them being brought into the, the family of Israel by becoming wives of Israelite men. And he's saying, he, he gives this process that our eyes may not see it this way, but that would have had compassion in it toward these women. Instead of just leaving them abandoned or certainly not mistreating them, what he prescribes for them, acknowledging this is a, a broken, fallen world, and there's no just sweet, romantic way for things to develop in, a, in an ugly situation like this. The process that he gives, there's compassion embedded in it because if you look at verse 13, for example, these women are to be given a time to grieve, right? And it's a short time, I acknowledge that. A, a month is not sufficient time to grieve the, the, the horrible thing that they have just lived through. But it at least is a a measure from God given to these men, given to these armies, and ultimately given to these women to say, we are going to respect you as a human being. Like this is unspeakably hard for you. We understand that we want to, to not just rush you into things, but we want to give a time to grieve, he says, your father and your mother. And we don't know if these women would have been married or unmarried. 
but he says at least to grieve their father and mother. And then I, I, I would again be careful of how I speak about this, but also in verse 13, an important note of restraint and compassion toward these women is they're not to be treated, even if these men desire for them to become their wife, they're not to immediately just be treated sexually as a wife. Right? Like they are, they are to be given a time to grieve. I would note the word after in verse 13. They're to be given this time to grieve and then after that to be uh, treated as a wife, right? So they're to be given this time to grieve. They're to not just be treated as some sort of objects, but they're to be respected and men are to show restraint. But most importantly, and our eyes may miss this, the way that you see compassion shown to them the most is, I think, in verse 14, which could sound like, oh man, they're just going to discard these ladies, they're just going to get rid of them uh, pretty soon thereafter. But what verse 14, I think, is communicating at a bigger level, where he says, if you no longer delight in her, you can let her go where she wants, but don't sell her for money, which seems like a low bar, right? Don't sell her for money. But he says, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. He's not commending that process of letting them go. And he's saying that these women, if you, if you have them come into your home, you will treat them with the full established role of a wife. Like she is not some girlfriend, she is not some object, she is not some economic resource to you. If you take her into your home, she is your wife. And she is not yours to just discard however you see fit to try to somehow turn in some cold-hearted cruel way turn a profit from her. She is your wife. And divorce law is hard to understand. I don't have time to get into it, but even in the Old Testament, how it's talked about in the New Testament, it's a complicated subject to understand. It's allowed more for hardness of heart than commended as a good thing. But even in these commands, Moses is saying that these vulnerable women are to be treated with respect and with compassion. They are to be treated with dignity. They are to be brought in as a wife, not as anything less than that. They are to have every right of a wife, and you cannot just discard her. And so there's a a care commended in this passage. I think that God's people of all ages would be wise here. There's a care commanded for those who are vulnerable. For those who are in places of weakness, who could easily be mistreated, the people of God are to not heap on to that or take advantage of that, but we are supposed to press back against that and take care of people who are hurting, take care of people who are in vulnerable positions. That is the posture of God's people, is to have compassion. For those even, these would have been women who had been their enemies, right? Like who may have encouraged their husband to go fight against the Israelites, right? Who may have like seethed toward them initially. They were enemies who were made into wives, right? And I couldn't help but as I read this, see even in all its twistedness and sin that's embedded in this last paragraph, I couldn't help but see a faint picture of what Jesus has done with us, right? Like we are enemies of his. We have fought against him. Like we have rebelled against him, collectively, individually. And Jesus, in his mercy and compassion toward us, has made us his bride, hasn't he? 
That is a glorious thing. Like there's a faint, somewhat twisted picture of it here with these men taking enemy, wives, enemy women to become their wives. But it is a picture of Jesus faintly that grows that we see Jesus came to us, to the, to the city of man, so to speak. And rather than destroying us and, and crushing us in our vulnerability, he has brought us into his family. He has made us his bride who he doesn't just tolerate and he certainly does not discard. Right, but that he delights and, and he compassionately loves and cares for us and always will. And I, I one other word of application I just want to give. This will be the last one. I was thinking of this, and when these women are brought into the life of Israel, when they're brought into the life even of a, a specific family, that husband was supposed to show compassion and patience towards her. And I think sometimes if we think of ourselves as the people of God and we have people who were in enemy territory, we're part of the domain of darkness and are now brought into the, the kingdom of light, brought into the family of God, there are often times that we lack compassion and patience towards them. Or we want to rush them to just get everything fixed and to, to get all their life buttoned up. But as the people of God who've been saved by Jesus, when other brothers or sisters are brought into the fold, we need to have compassion and patience toward them. To not crush them because of the sin that remains in their life, but to point them to Jesus again, again and talk about how great he is and say, I'd love to help you, brother or sister. I'd love to help you grow in godliness. We must never humiliate or discard the people that God brings brings into our spiritual family. We are to have compassion and care toward them. I want to close by mentioning, I have heard, I don't know about you, but I have heard because of the combat that's happening in Ukraine right now, I have heard the term war crimes more probably in the last two weeks than I had heard in the two decades of my adult life thus far. There is something in us as human beings, just even unbelieving human beings, that knows there's certain lines that should not be crossed in warfare. That there's certain things that are out of bounds, that are inappropriate, that are beyond the pale. And when we see it, when we hear of it, we know it. And thankfully as a human race, we've developed good things like, I won't get into all these things, but like things like the Geneva Convention and things like that post-World War II where we've come into large agreement as human beings about what's appropriate and what's not, what kind of our collective rules of engagement are, and we seek to follow those as individual soldiers or as larger armies. But this text today was like the Geneva Convention before the Geneva Convention, right? Like, and as we think about the way we engage enemies, as we think about how we engage in spiritual battle, we don't need to just look to some Geneva Convention. We don't need to look to some document that human beings have written up or rules that we've bound ourselves to. We have the cross to look at. Like we have the mercy of God on full display. His restraint toward us who were his enemies. His mercy and compassion toward us who were his enemies. We can see at the cross. Not on some piece of paper in the UN somewhere or something. We have the cross and the empty tomb to look at to see God's mercy and grace toward us who are his enemies. And that, and that, in the utmost way, is what will compel us to show mercy to others, to show compassion towards others, to show grace towards others. We do not fight like the world. We fight like Christ, and we fight for Christ. Amen? I want to invite you to stand up. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more song, then we'll be dismissed. But let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, uh, we 
left to ourselves, we are your enemies. There are some even in this room now who are still your enemies, uh, who have rebelled against you, who have mistreated you, who have defied you, who have forgotten you. God, we are grateful that you have loved us as your enemies, that you have sent your son to die in our place and be raised for us. God, as recipients of that type of mercy, that type of restraint, that type of compassion, may you help us to show that to others, even to those who mistreat us, those who oppose us. And as we combat even against Satan himself, we pray that we may be filled with faith. We may be filled with courage and confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And we pray that even as we sing now, as we close our time together, that you be honored by the attitudes of our heart and the words of our lips. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.